Welcome back to Nerd is a New Cool. I'm Josh. I'm Justin. And I'm John. What's been going on, guys? This is a little different. This is interesting. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, if you can't tell, we're doing this for the first time remotely because we are all quarantined to our own homes. So uh, we'll see how this goes. We're all in our we're all in our basements. Yeah, hanging out. So this is like a nerd dream. You get to sit in your basement and do nothing all day and talk about movies. So pretty yeah, exciting. Not, yeah, it could be worse. Yeah, yeah. So what did we just nerd out on, Justin? What did you just nerd out on? Yeah, I've had a lot of time. I've had a lot of time to nerd out on things, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine. And what I did was, after watching the third season, no wait, the second season of Narcos Mexico, I just had to restart the entire original series again. So I did that, and I did that pretty quick. And if you don't know what Narcos is, again, it's about the original season or series, the three seasons are about, um, basically about Colombia. And the first two seasons focus on Pablo Escobar. And then they get into, in the third season, The Gentleman of Cali. You guys, I, I know I ask you this all the time, but have you guys watched this yet? I've watched the first two. I have not seen the third season. Okay. Lambert, you've seen it, right? I, no. I've watched, I watched a couple episodes of the first season and then just stopped. I don't know. For no apparent reason. I just didn't finish it. That's <laughs> very sad for you. You should watch it. It's okay. You know, it's also it's um, you're learning how to read too because you got to read so many subtitles in that show that it's very educational. Yeah, see, I mean, it's that's you right. learn a lot of bad words in Spanish. So yeah, I don't you're read. learning, you're learning Spanish. It's like Rosetta Stone. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't need to read any books. I just need to uh, watch shows with subtitles. So, <laughs> season one came out. This is all on Netflix. Season one came out in 2015. Season two was 2016, and two, and season three was 2017. Um, it's created by Carlos Bernard, Chris Brancato, and Doug Miro. And again, they did, they did Narcos Mexico as well. They have the exact same feel to them. This one has one of my favorites, Pedro Pascal, as Javier Pena. Um, you guys know him as Oberyn Martell in the old Game of Thrones. He crushed that role, I have to say. Oh, he's per- he's perfect for it. Yeah, yeah, he was he was great. Did you guys get my joke though? He crushed that yeah, role. Get it? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really it's really pretty, pretty punny. Um, yeah, I know. I try. He's also the Mandalorian in the Mandalorian. Uh, it also stars uh, Wagner Mora as Pablo Escobar. He's just freaking amazing. He's talking about someone who just completely embodies the character, like it's. Oh yeah, yeah. He's he's great. Uh, you got Boyd Holbrook. He plays the other FBI agent, uh, Steve Murphy. Um, DEA. Or DEA. Yeah, why I say FBI? DEA, you're right. Yes. Uh, he's also from Logan and the Predator remake. And finally, we've got Alberto Aman. He plays uh, Pacho Herrera, which is – he's one of the gentlemen of Cali. So, like I said, great show. Um, if you watched either of the series, in Mexico or the original, watch the other one because they're both great. Yeah, kind of in that same vein, um, I've been nerding out on Ozark, the third season. Have you guys seen the show Ozark? I've watched the first episode. Yep, the first two. I haven't, I haven't watched this season, but I saw the first two. Man, season three is so good. It is. It's incredible. Um, Don't so, spoil it, because I'm going to watch. I won't. 
the birds <laughs> and their teenage We're going to talk kids. all about it. Charlotte and Jonah, uh, you know, they're an ordinary family, except for Marty is a financial advisor who is a money launderer for the second largest drug cartel in Mexico. Things go bad, and Marty and his wife and his kids leave Chicago, and they get to go to Lake of the Ozarks, which I'm a big fan of the Lake of the Ozarks. I don't know if you guys are. Yeah, I think that the like one of the only shots actually from the Ozarks that was like that opening you know, they they the yeah. scene in the first episode. Yeah, they uh, they shoot in Georgia because of tax purposes. Right? Yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, it it debuted in 2017. It's created and written by Jason Bateman, who we'll talk a little bit more about here in a second, and Bill Dubuque and Mark Williams, who writ, wrote The Accountant. It stars. Jason Bateman as Marty Bird. I think we all know Jason Bateman, but I mean, I love him in Dodgeball and Horrible Bosses. This is kind of a, a turn for him. He's usually a comedic actor, but he does great in the drama world as mm-hmm. well. Um, Laura Linney is Wendy Bird. That's his wife in Savages. And probably one of my favorite characters, if not the favorite on the show, is Julia Garner as Ruth Langmore. And she is in The Americans. Oh, she's that girl. She's that girl with the curly hair, right? Yeah. Yep. She's the blonde. She's good. Yeah. She is really good. It's a. Uh, I mean, watch this show immediately if you have not. You guys have a lot of time right now. My uh, my days right now are spent watching Paw Patrol and Sheriff Cali and every Disney show known to man. So I watch it at nighttime, but it is good. I, I watch all the. Have you have you, wa- have you watched on? Word yet because now it's available on Disney Plus. No, you know what? She's not in movies right now. She loves to watch shows, so all she wants to watch is Paw Patrol over and uh, over and no. over again. Uh, well, on, Onward though, Onward is pretty good. It's but it's like the it's like the it's like the boy version of Frozen. I'll have to check it. I mean, I, I know what it's about, so maybe we'll try to get her to watch that. Yeah, no, Megan and I watched it last night. It was pretty good. There you go. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm doing, you know, a little bit, a little different. Um, you know, we've been meaning to get to Ozark season three and, you know, we got a lot of time on our hands, but I find myself getting back to a video game that I put down a few months ago while I got into it. And then I just, for some reason, turned it on and started playing again and it sucked me in again. And it's Assassin's Creed Odyssey. And it is set in the year 431 BCE, and the plot tells a mythological history of the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta. Players control a male or female, I chose a guy, a mercenary, who fights for both sides and they attempt to reunite their family. This is the 11th major installment of the Assassin's Creed series, which debuted in 2007. And this game came out on October 5th, 2018. It was developed and published by Ubisoft, as have all of the Assassin's Creed games, and it's directed by Jonathan Dumont and Scott Phillips. Um, I play. I haven't played all of the Assassin's Creed games, but I played a lot of them, and they're just they're fun. And probably one of the things that I like the most about it is that it's an open world. It's an open world game that you could spend hours, so much time, hours, days. Like I haven't. I've been playing the game, you know, again for maybe two weeks and I haven't even done any of the main quests yet. I'm just off on the side, just like doing just random stuff. And this game is just absolutely massive. So 
Oh, it's just fun. Yep. It's a fun my, way to kill time. Favorite, I haven't played it in a while, but my favorite Assassin's Creed game was the American Revolution one. That was a good one. I like that one, too. I got Black Flag. I wasn't a huge fan of that. I didn't realize they were still making Assassin's Creed games, to be honest. This is, yeah, this is the most recent one that came out. Okay. Because they had Orange, Origins before this one, and then this one's Odyssey. So this is, uh, I don't know. It's fun. I was playing it this morning before we did this, so check it out. I Xbox, like, PlayStation. It's <laughs> funny to think of a video game being directed by two people. Like, uh-huh. they're just, it's, it is massive. The sky, it's, and it's still, like, I'll, I'll be playing it, and I'm still amazed by, like, just the sheer scale of the game. Yeah. Hmm. All right, well, I guess we'll have to check that out. Um, so, that kind of brings us to what we're going to be talking about today, which we're going to be going full nerd on March Madness, or as we're calling it, March Sadness. March Sadness. Very sad, yes. Very sad. The lack of madness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so what is March Madness? The March Madness is obviously the NCAA Division I's men's basketball tournament, and it's branded NCAA March Madness. I think what makes it cool is it's a single elimination tournament. And it takes place, obviously, in March with 68 college basketball teams from the Division One level of the NCAA. So, pretty cool tournament. Even if you're not like myself, I'm not a basketball fan, but even I will tune in to some of the games. Yep. This is about the only college basketball I watch right now is, yeah. is the tournament. And obviously, it is played in March. And it's become one of the most famous annual sporting events in the United States. Yeah, a lot goes into qualifying for this tournament every year. Yeah, so you know you get 68 teams qualify, 32 teams get automatic bids, and then all 32 currently hold all 32 Division One conferences hold championship tournaments to determine which team receives the automatic qualification. And then I like watching the play-in games because I like watching the underdogs go in there. Yeah, so. the small schools. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the remaining 36 tournament slots are granted to at-large bids, which are determined by the selection committee in a nationally televised event on the Sunday preceding the first four play-in games and dubbed Selection Sunday by the media and fans by a group primarily of conference commissioners and school athletic directors who are appointed to serve by the NCAA. So kind of similar to what they're doing for football now, really, for the, champ- for the playoff. Yeah, I love Selection Sunday. Just watching the each bracket pop out, it's pretty awesome. The committee also determines where all 68 teams are seated and placed in the bracket. So they actually yeah. they release like each uh, quadrant one at a time. It's very yeah. Good. And then that quadrant, there's four regions, and each region has 16 teams. But then four additional teams are added per the decision of the selection committee. Yep, and the committee is charged with making each of the four regions as close as possible in overall quality of teams from wherever they may come. But usually, when you whenever the bracket comes out, it's, there's always one, like there's always kind of one where it's like, wow, it's going to be really hard to come out of the you know the west or the south just because for whatever reason it just seems like that one's loaded. Yeah, and doesn't Duke always almost always get placed in their their part of the country? Isn't that kind of the running joke? 
at Duke. Well, they try to do that with the higher seeds. Mm -hmm. They kind of give the higher seeds like a home field advantage by putting Duke in the East or – yeah. It's not Duke's fault that they're good every year. in the West. (laughs) No, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> so the top four teams, speaking of number one seeds, will be distributed amongst the four regions, and each will receive a number one seed. The next four ranked teams will then be distributed among the four regions, each receiving a number two seed, so on and so on and so on down the line. So carried to its logical conclusion, <clears throat> this would give each region 17 teams, seeded one through 17, but each region has only 16 teams. The actual seeding depends on, among other factors, the rankings of the eight teams that the committee selects for the first four opening round. And another thing that kind of goes into, again, where teams are placed and kind of what area they're competing in, it also has to do with making sure teams from the same conference don't meet until the regional finals. That's tough sometimes, especially when you've got a lot of teams that are kind of decent, but not maybe the best in the country. Yeah. Yeah, and additionally, it is also instructed to avoid any possible rematches of regular season or previous year's tournaments during the first and second rounds. I mean, let's be honest. Do you really think they're actually doing this manually, or are they just putting all this into a computer program and saying, go, and it just spits out all this stuff based on all the different factors that they set? I think in today's world, they're probably using a computer program. there's, There's too many things that you have to consider to make sure, like, all these things are separate and we got to wonder if maybe they put it into a computer program and then they like use the eye test to kind Mm -hmm. of you know move some things around i guess i think that probably that probably makes the most sense yeah um that speaking of more restrictions there are listed in venues in the venue section below to comply with these other requirements the selection committee may move one or several teams up or down one seat from their respective original seed line so that's kind of what you were just saying where they can tweak if they if they so choose yeah and i just for example the 40th overall ranked team that is supposed to be a 10 seed might actually be moved to a 9 or an 11 seed just to make sure that that doesn't happen mm-hmm. yeah and so then that means the bracket is established and during the semifinals the champion of the top ranked number one seeds Region plays against the champion of the fourth-ranked number one seed, and then the two and three number one seeds will play against the champions. So it's pretty – I mean, it's a bracket. If you've ever filled out brackets before, I think you get that. Um, but, yeah, it's a crazy – it's a lot of work. Yeah, there's a, there's, there's a lot that goes into determining the seeds and the regions and where these teams – and who these teams are going to play. Now let's talk about the uh, – the rounds and the different rounds that the tournament has. Yeah. Round one is called the first four. And this actually came about in 2011. Uh, The first four games between the four lowest ranked at large teams and the four lowest ranked automatic bid conference uh, champion teams. Each year, the four lowest ranked automatic bid teams compete to receive either number 16 seeds while the four lowest ranked at large teams compete to be a number 11 seed. So they're, they're like in the tournament, but they're not officially in the tournament yet. Mm-hmm. Got to make a little extra money. The NCAA has to. There, so. Well, I think it was because it was originally just 64 and then they expanded it to 68 because I think some conferences were like, hey, we should get an automatic bid too. So they had to expand the field to account for, for other conferences. 
so that it was fair and a true like national tournament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, then after the first four, you have the first round, which is round of 64, the second round, round 32, and then you move into the names that we all love and know. So the regional semifinals, which is the Sweet 16. Yep. And then it goes into the regional finals or the Elite Eight. The national semifinals is the final four. And then, of course, the national championship game, which is typically played like right around now. Yeah, probably would have been played this Monday, I would assume. Yeah, I think so. I think it would have been played on Monday, probably. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there have been quite a few teams that have had multiple wins. Now, can I ask you guys something? You're both Mizzou guys, right? Has Mizzou ever made a Final Four? Uh, I think they made it one time, yeah. I think they have. Um, not not no, you know, like, no, you know what? It might, I think fan. the farthest they got was the Elite Eight. Now that I'm thinking yeah, I was being sarcastic. They have not made it to the final four. No, I was going to say, because I remember them so, making the Elite Eight that year. Yeah. Kareem Rushing that made the Elite Eight, I believe. Yeah. Good old Quinn Snyder. Good old Quinn. Yeah. Um, so UCLA has the most with 11 championships. Kentucky is in second with eight. Justin, I think we need to stop there because – Looking at the UCLA one, that is just so freaking impressive. Yeah, um, they won 1964, in 1965, just like 10 years in a row. 67, 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, 73. Yeah, yeah so from, from 64 to 75, they won every year except for two. Yeah. So that's which pretty, is ridiculous. Yeah, that is pretty crazy. <laughs> That was when they had like Wooden, right? Bill Walton and Lou Elsinder and yeah, yeah. And the, John, the John Wooden era, pretty good. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, uh, North Carolina has six. Duke has five. And Indiana has five. I would think Indiana would have more, as big as they are, about the NCAA tournament, and they haven't won since 1987. That's interesting. Since 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 Bobby Knight. I wasn't even um, alive in 1987, so that's. that's that's sad. In 1987, you said? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then rounding out the, the rounding out the list is UConn with four, Kansas, whatever, with three, and Villanova also has three. Uh, yeah, so – and actually Villanova has really been kind of jumping up the rankings here. The most recent championships last year was Virginia beating Texas Tech, and their coach was Tony Bennett. In 2018, Villanova won over Michigan. Their coach is Jay Wright. And then North Carolina in 2017 beat Gonzaga, and their coach was Roy Williams. And then in 2016, Villanova beat North Carolina, also coached by Jay Wright. And in 2015, the Dukies beat the Badgers, of course, coached by Coach K. Mike Krzyzewski, he's a stud. Something else to kind of talk about, which is interesting, is teams that have won and the next year they don't even make the tournament. It doesn't happen a lot, but it has happened a, few, a fair amount of times. In 1978, uh, Kentucky, after they won, uh, the next year they went 19-12 and 12 and didn't make it. But they did go to the NIT, but then they lost in the first round. Oh, Nice. <laughs> Yeah, so then the 1979 champ in Michigan State and the 1979 runner-up Indiana State didn't qualify for the 1980 NCAA tournament. Even funnier, 
neither of them got invited to the NIT that year. And Michigan State is the only team to lose with the to win who had a losing record the next year. And then following '79 tournament, Indiana State lost some guy named Larry Bird to graduation, and Magic Johnson left Michigan State after his sophomore season. So you can see why maybe those two teams weren't any good the next yeah. year. I, I don't know that Indiana State has been good since then. I don't think you don't hear from them very much, at yeah. least not even come tournament time or not ever, other than, yeah. you know, the fact that Larry Bird went there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the, the 1983 champion, uh, North, Car- North Carolina State, went 19-13 and 13 in 1984. The Wolfpack accepted an invitation to the NIT, losing their first-round game to Florida State. 1986 champion Louisville didn't make it the next year because they went 18 and 14, and they actually declined the invitation to the NIT. They're too good. Oh. For the NIT. They were too good. Too for good. The NIT. They were too good for the not invited tournament. Yeah. And I, I know that we're all going to be stunned by this, but the 1988 champion KU went 19 and 12 in 1989. However, stunningly, the team was ineligible for participation in the 1989 tournament because they had NCAA sanctions for recruiting violations. KU oh, that's just, would never do that. They would never do that, ever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just more never. surprised that the NCAA actually punished them. That, I know. That's, that's more shocking than anything. Yeah. Maybe they was, some uh, guts back there. They don't do that anymore for old that was, that, was that Roy? Was that Roy? Was, would Roy would have been coaching KU um, at that time? I don't know. I don't know how long Roy was there, but that, that, it's, it's definitely at least Roy, maybe the coach before Roy. So in 2007 and two, the 2007 and 2006 champion, Florida, and 2007 runner-up Ohio State both failed to qualify for the NCAA tournament in 2008. Both accepted invitations to, to the NIT and both made it to the semifinals. Florida lost to UMass in the semifinals, and Ohio State beat UMass for the championship to win the tournament. I believe that was when Ohio State had Greg Oden, wasn't it? I, be- I believe yeah. so, yes. Yeah, that was, great. that was Greg Oden time. Yeah. But they were still pretty good the next year. I mean, winning the NIT is, is tough. I mean, it's not I – and mean, those aren't – I mean, they're all yeah. good schools still. Yeah. Uh, 2009 champion North Carolina – the next year, they went 20 and 17. In 2010, they did not make it, um, and they went to the NIT. Speaking of having some success, they lost to Dayton in the finals. And then the 2012 champion Kentucky failed to make the tournament in 2013. They were invited to the NIT, where they lost to Robert Morris in the first round of the tournament. <laughs> And then rounding out the list, the 2014 champion UConn won 20 and 14 in 2015, but failed to make the tournament. Added NIT to Arizona State in the first round. Hmm. All right, so let's talk a little bit of history of the old tournament. Only eight teams competed in the first NCAA tournament, which is crazy now that it's 68. Oregon who were nicknamed the Tall Furs due to the height of its starting front court, beat out seven other teams to win the tournament that year in 1939. What a great name, the Tall Furs. Yeah, <laughs> and they're not – yeah, that's, that is kind of a fun name. 
So then after that, the field began growing. There were 16 teams in 1951 and 22 to 25 teams from 1953 to 1974. It expanded to 32 teams in 1975. And then finally, 10 years later, it expanded to what we pretty much know of as the 64-team tournament field. And then in 2011, now it's 68, but it still gets kind of trimmed down to 64. There's a lot of kind of information out there about where the March Madness comes from. But the earliest that I could find was born in Illinois, the annual tournament of high school boys basketball teams sponsored by the Illinois High School Association grew from a small invitational affair in 1908 to a statewide institution with over 900 schools competing by the late 1930s. So the guy, Henry V. Porter, was the assistant executive secretary of the IHSA, was so impressed with the phenomenon that he wrote an essay to commemorate it. He entitled it March Madness, and it first appeared in the IHSA's magazine in 1939. And the national National Invitation Tournament, or NIT, which actually predates the NCAA tournament by a year, was once considered the preeminent college basketball event. It was especially attractive to teams that wanted the media attention of playing in Madison Square Garden in New York. Yeah, and prior to 1975, only one team per conference could be in the NCAA tournament, which that's just so weird to think. Like yeah. This. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense. That's kind of like, like the original world series. It was, it was basically the winner of the American league played the winner in the national league. And that yeah. was, and then that was, and that was done. Yep. Yeah. Um, however, se- after several highly ranked teams in the country were denied entrance into the tournament, um, like for example, in 1970, North Carolina, who was 14, no in the ACC, but they lost to, uh, uh, it lost in the ACC tournament. They weren't able to play. So eventually the NCAA began to place at-large teams in the tournament instead of just conference champions. Yeah, moving back to the NIT, before the pre-at-large era, they actually competed for prestige at the NCAA tournament. However, in the 1950s, the NCAA ruled that no team could compete in both tournaments. As of late 1970, Marquette coach Al McGuire chose the NIT over the NCAA tournament because his team had been placed in the Midwest region rather than close to home in the Mideast region, and it went on to win the NIT. Yeah, isn't that funny that it, like schools would pick and it had to do with where they were located, not with which one? Yeah, the other one. Wanted to stay close to home. Yeah. But, a- but after that, the NCAA said no. They barred any school that declined to bid and its tourney from playing postseason games elsewhere. What, That's yeah. just like – that is just like the NCAA to do, honestly. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to play <laughs> yeah. with us? You can't play anywhere. <laughs> we started off talking this episode about cartels. I think you could consider the NCAA <laughs> cartel. They are the worst. Um, a third-place game was held from 1946 to 1981. Interesting. That'd be fun to see. Yeah. An antitrust lawsuit ensued decades early, later – but the NCAA settled it in 2005 as a part of a deal in which it purchased the NIT. Yeah, that's a way then, to that's a way to solve that issue if you just if you own both now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then the NIT obviously now is cons- a consolation tournament, and it's open to teams that don't make the cut for March Madness. And beginning in 2001, the field was expanded from 64 to 65 teams. 
adding to this tournament, which was, form, which was informally known as the play-in game. This was in response to the creation of the Mountain West Conference during 1999. Yeah, originally the winner of the Mountain West Tournament did not receive an automatic bid. And doing so would have meant the elimination of one of the other at-large bids. So instead of having to make a tough decision, of course, the NCAA just said, hey, we'll just have another game. <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we'll just make more money. We'll line our pockets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the number 64 and 65 seeds were seeded in a regional bracket. as a 16A, 16B seed. And then they played in the play-in game on the Tuesday preceding the first weekend of the tournament. And the game was always played at the University of Dayton Arena in, obviously, Dayton, Ohio. That's interesting. And then during the 2011 tournament, the tournament expanded to 68 teams with four play-in games, and now they are officially known as the first four. Yeah, and so like we said before, um, the, the, the teams are not – the first four are not automatically seated number 16 anymore because they kind of felt like that's almost unfair because they're just throwing you up against the number one seed. And until a couple of years ago, we didn't have a number one seed to ever lose. We'll talk about that probably later. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, 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 the selection committee chairman, Dan Guerrero, basically said, if we're going to expand it, let's create some more drama and so maybe throw some teams that could possibly be 10, 11, or 12 seeds as well. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So real quick before we get into some, uh, you know, rituals, awards, and history, all that jazz. Um, what what happens now? What do you do? You guys foresee seeing any changes to the tournament for next year? I think no. I read. No, I don't. But I read that they're going to allow players a fifth year of eligibility if they want to come back in place and say we're not given that chance. Well, to- I, I heard they were doing that for spring sports, but they weren't doing that for winter. Oh. Yeah, okay. I don't think they've made that decision for winter yet. I think maybe I misread that. Okay. Well, so it's spring for sure, and then they were going <laughs> to have conversations about the winter. But I, I, I don't know. I, th- I personally, I think they should be given that extra year of eligibility. That's pretty crappy. But, yeah. I don't I mean, know. I mean, it's really you. Just kind of have to say, well, it's a lost season. What do you do? You know. I think if anything, you're going to see there'll be a bunch more interest next year in the tournament, and you, they'll probably make a bunch more money because people will have missed it for another year. Yeah. You know, also thinking about giving those people the fifth year of eligibility, like there's a lot of ramifications with scholarships as well. Because yeah. there are still graduating seniors that are going to be freshmen next year, and they need spots. <laughs> they want money, right? So – there's only so many people and then maybe do you expand how many kids yeah. and how much scholarship money you can have? Like there's a lot of like dominoes that have to fall basically. Yeah. yeah I was listening to Mike and Mike this, uh, this week on my way to work. Cause well, I was still going in the office, but uh, they were talking about some of the, they had, they had the lacrosse coach from Maryland on and he was talking about exactly that where he was like, like it's great that they did this, but like I've got incoming freshmen coming in because they're thinking these seniors are going to leave and they play the same position. So like, is that going to change where they go? So he's like, he said, you know, you could see the transfer portal just blowing up first. Like not even some of the main sports were for some of the, the smaller sports that don't have a lot of scholarship to give. And they give like parcels out to everybody because everybody's going to be moving from one to another because he said he had eight seniors, and he said, eh, they probably won't all come back, but I could see maybe half of them coming back, and then what do I do? 
what do I do with the incoming freshman that I was going to offer like a, a half scholarship to? Now I can't. Are they going to expand the scholarship? So there was, was a lot of interesting, I won't call them consequences of that decision, but like there's a lot more that has to, there's a lot more things that have to be considered now that they've made that decision. Yeah. It's not just cut and dry. Like there it is. I mean, it's yeah. no, there's a nope. lot of money, a lot of money going into this thing. So. Not to mention, maybe those kids need to start their lives and go to work. So Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. All right, so let's move to rituals and awards. I'm, one of the biggest rituals is the winning team cuts down the nets at the end of the, the championship games as well as the national championship game. The head coach cuts the last strand connecting the net to the hoop, and he claims the net. Pretty cool tradition. I didn't know. I, well, I didn't know it started off with seniors and then went down by class. Yeah, it's kind of the the pecking order of raising a cup. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Certain people, certain people get to do it first, and it just kind of works its way down the list. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, an exception was made for the head coach cutting down the last string in 2013 when Louisville head coach Rick Pitino gave the honor to Kevin Ware, who had suffered a catastrophic leg injury during the tournament. I actually remember that. I do, too. Yeah. I can't believe it's been seven years. That's crazy. Yeah, his leg, I mean, like, yeah. was, wasn't a bone pop fracture. Oh, yeah. I, I think like, it just it snapped. And, oh. you know, Rick Pitino such a good, nice man, an honorable man. That's pretty cool to see him do that. It, that just <laughs> goes to show how nice of a guy he is. Yeah, he's just, he's just genuine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's genuine. Yes. Yeah, if, if you didn't pick up on the sarcasm there, Google Rick Pitino, and you'll, you'll know that Josh was not being serious with that comment. Um, He's coaching again. Allegedly. I saw that. Somebody hired him. Uh-huh. Yeah, I can't remember who, but some small school. Yeah. Actually, I'm going to look it up. So that, that tradition is actually credited to Everett Case, the coach of North Carolina State, who stood on his players' shoulders to accomplish the feat when the Wolfpack won the Southern Conference Tournament in 1947. Uh, on CBS since 1987 and yearly to 2015, and the odd number of years since 2017, and TBS since 2016, the even-numbered years, close out the tournament with one shining moment performed by Luther Vandross. And we'll talk more about that song later. Huh. I don't, I don't think I've ever even recalled that. Uh, going back to Rick Pitino, he is now the coach of the Iona Gales. Oh, okay. <clears throat> but, go, um, go Iona. Go Iona. Starting in 2006. The adult, the adult dancing industry is going to see a big jump in that little town. So. <laughs> little town. Little town of wherever Iona is. Yeah. Um, but in 2006, teams that make the Final Four in Division I tournament received a bronze-plated regional championship trophy upon winning the regional championship. Uh, Iona's in New York, so I think they're they're probably fine. (laughs) The teams that make the national championship game receive an additional trophy that is gold-plated for the winner and silver-plated for the runner-up. Starting in the mid-90s, the NCAA champions in men and women's basketball received an elaborate trophy with a black marble base and a crystal neck. Which, with a removable crystal basketball following the presentation of the standard NCAA championship trophy. And champions also receive uh, commemorative gold championship rings, and the other three Final Four teams receive Final Four rings. 
Yeah, and after the championship trophy, pretty much like every other major sport, one player is selected and then awarded the most outstanding player award pretty much always comes from the championship team. And it's not intended to be the same as the most valuable player award, although it sometimes basically becomes that. Yeah. So um, let's move on to TV coverage, you know, through TV and all that fun stuff. But from 1969 to 1981, the NCAA tourney aired on NBC but not all games were televised. The early rounds were not always seen on TV. In 1980, ESPN began showing the opening rounds of the tournament. This was the network's first contract signed with the NCAA for a major sport and helped to establish ESPN's following among college basketball fans. ESPN showed six first-round games on Thursday and again on Friday. ESPN all re-ran, also re-ran games over overnight and at the time there was only one ESPN network with no ability to split its signal regionally so ESPN showed only the most competitive games during the 1980s the tournament's popularity on television soared yeah in 82 CBS obtained broadcast television rights to the NCAA tournament yeah and then since 2010 they've had a, the NCAA has had a joint contract with CBS and Turner Broadcasting, and the coverage of the tournament is split between <coughs> CBS, TNT, TBS, and then the well-known channel True TV. That's just an oddball right there. I mean, I I've know. seen them on True TV, but like that just doesn't make any sense that you would see college basketball on. That, True that's kind of like you know in the NHL playoffs when you're watching a, a playoff game on CNBC, and you're like. Right. What am I doing here? Why am I watching this? So. That's the only time I watch True TV, but I do watch yeah. it a lot. I watch it a lot in the tournament. <laughs> so broadcasters from CBS, TBS, and TNT sports coverage all shared are all shared across all four networks with CBS's college basketball teams supplemented with Turner's NBA teams, while studio segments take place at the CBS Broadcast Center in New York City and Turner Studios in Atlanta. In the New York-based studio shows, CBC's Greg Gumbel and Clark Kellogg are joined Ernie Johnson Jr., Kenny Smith, and Charles Barkley of TNT's Inside the NBA, while Seth Davis of CBS assists with Casey Stern and various NBA TV personalities. While two of Turner's NBA voices, Kevin Harlan and Ian Eagle, are already employed by CBS in other capacities. They're, they also lend analysts Reggie Miller, Chris Weber, Grant Hill, and Steve Smith, and secondary play-by-play and Brian Anderson, CBS. In turn, CBS announcers Jim Nance, Brad Nessler, Spiro, Nate Didis, Andrew Catalan, and Carter Blackburn appear on Turner Network broadcasts, along with analyst Jim Spinarkle, Bill Rafferty, and Dan Bonner. It's a whole lot of names and a whole lot of networks all just going across each other and cross-pollinating and just go basically going wherever they need to so that all these games get as much coverage as humanly possible to line yeah. the NCAAs. And my, one of my favorite things, like I said, I don't watch a lot of it, but one of my favorite <laughs> things is what is Jim Nance going to say in the final game? What is his slogan going to be at the end of the championship game? And also, what is Barkley going to say at any given point in time? Yeah, that's a good point. I, feel, <laughs> I just feel like it's like an Avengers like team up for that this tournament. They all, yep. they all they all come together under one umbrella 
to cover this in the to cover do. as much basketball as any as anybody possibly can. Yeah, <clears throat> that current contract runs through twenty twenty four, and for the first time in history, provides for the nationwide broadcast each year of all games of the tournament. As I said before, all first four games air on True TV. And then a few featured first or second round game, and each time window is broadcast on CBS, while all other games are shown either on TBS, TNT, or True TV. The Sweet 16 is split between CBS and TBS. TBS has the exclusive rights to the regional finals, also known as the Elite Eight, through 2014. Yeah, and that exclusivity extended to the entire Final Four as well, but after the 2013 tournament, Turner Sports elected to exercise a contractual option for 2015 and 2016, giving TBS broadcast rights to the national semifinal matchups. CBS kept its national championship game rights. And just continuing on, since 2015, CBS and TBS have split coverage of the Elite Eight. In 2016, CBS and TBS alternated coverage of the Final Four and National Championship game with TBS getting the final two rounds in even-numbered years and CBS in odd-numbered years. March Madness On Demand would remain unchanged, though Turner could develop their own service. And this is why they do this. The CBS broadcast provides the NCAA with over $500 million annually and makes up over 90% of the NCAA's annual revenue. So canceling the tournament... They lost a lot of money. They lost a ton of money yeah it's pretty and, and actually a lot of the schools did too because this television contract yep. multi-billion dollar television contract they get divided up among the division one basketball playing schools and conferences and here's how it works one sixth of the money goes directly to the schools based on how many sports they play uh so one share for each sport starting with 14 which is the minimum needed for division one membership and then one-third of the money goes directly to the schools based on how many scholarships they give out. One share for each of the first 50, two for each of the next 50, 10 for each of the next 50, and 20 for each scholarship above 150. And then half of the money goes to the conferences based on how well they did in the six previous men's basketball. John? In. One share for each win, except in the in the four. And prior to 2008 tournament, the playing game in 2007. Based on the 2001 through 2006 tournaments, the Big East received 14.5 million dollars, while the eight conferences that did not win a first round game in those six years received slightly more than one million dollars each. Most conferences distribute most of the revenue evenly to its membership institutions, regardless of performance. That's why you see a lot of, you know, big 10 people will root for big 10 teams when they're not playing their own. So the conference can get more money. Same thing happens in bowl games too, where conferences just get a pool of money based on how the teams perform. And then it just gets split through everybody else. Yeah. I kind of get why people root for your, your own conference, but I've never been, that guy <laughs> i usually don't root for teams that are like our rivals just because they're in our conference you know yeah that would be hard for me like i could never root it just i could never root for the blackhawks 
everything, you know, like, so. Well, like, when we were in the Big 12, yeah, that was hard because, you know, I'm not rooting for Kansas no matter what. But right in the SEC, like, I don't, I don't really consider any team a rival yet. Hey, Arkansas is a rival. They have a, they have a rivalry game. Whatever. Yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're trying just to manufacture that rivalry, but it's not even a real thing. So, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, yeah. CBS has been the major part of the NCAA in televising the tournament since 1982, but of course there have been a lot of different changes since the tournament was first broadcast in 1969. Basically, they make a ton of money off of the TV contracts. It's probably a good way to look at it. So, As do most professional sports franchises and most oh, yeah. leagues. I mean, that's where a lot of them – like. The Cardinals have, what, a $2 billion TV deal with Fox Sports? Yep. That's, yeah. That's a lot of money. A lot of money being lost. <laughs> so let's move on to who would have won. Who do you guys think would have won in 2020 and why? So I, I like, did a lot of research and, like, looked up all these different simulations. Stunning. You, you really got into this. I did yeah. get into it. And the sports line projected model simulated a hypo- hypo- hypothetical, so I'm trying to say, 2020 and still be tournament bracket. And the national champion may actually surprise people, but it was Dayton, and that's who I was rooting for the whole time. So I probably would have been right. The runner-up was Gonzaga. And I kind of always root for Gonzaga because, uh, I mean, it's, it's Gonzaga, you know? Who was that guy with the real bad mustache? Was it Adam, Adam Morrison? Adam Morrison. Yeah. yeah. The play for them. Was, yeah. He was amazing. Terrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> Good basketball player, though. Can't take yeah. that away from So him. there's a lot of different simulations of, of kind of who would be in the Elite Eight. Um, the Washington Post, I thought you'd like this, Lambert. Washington Post had Ohio State beating Dayton in the finals. An all Ohio finals. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I said, for me, I put the Blues. Did the St. Louis Blues possibly win another championship? I don't know. Um, I know. I don't know enough about college basketball to get into this. I haven't watched one minute of college basketball this year. But I just said Michigan State because Tom Izzo. They always oh, do yes. make a run. I don't, I'm not sure they were going to make the tournament this year, but if they were, they – you think they were going to make it? Okay. I mean, and because Justin was rooting for Dayton, I would have rooted against anybody but Dayton. Yeah, most likely. That's so. Fair. Yeah, <laughs> but Dayton. Well, my answer is easy because, well, the, the Tigers weren't in it, and and the Buckeyes were. So, I would have picked the Buckeyes, and I did pick the Buckeyes. And it's good to see the Washington Post at least had them going to the finals, and I had them beating Michigan State because you don't bet on Tom Izzo in tournament, even if he is accused of witness tampering. I yeah. mean, let's be honest. Though. If you're not which just, which just came out basketball, recently. If you're not trying to cheat as a college basketball coach, you're behind the curve. So you got to go to the <laughs> AAU games with seventh graders and pay them money and all that fun stuff. Yeah. I should say that Michigan State was ranked ninth when the season ended. So, yeah, I guess they probably would have made the tournament. They probably would have made the tournament. Well, yeah. I mean, they were, they were the three seed against Dayton in the East yeah. in this yeah. little – and this whole thing. So, truth be told, um, I actually couldn't remember what the bracket even looked like and where all the teams were. So, I used Hildebrand, I used your information to make sure that I actually picked someone in the finals that Ohio State could have beaten in the finals because <laughs> I couldn't remember where any of these teams were. And yeah, so 
because it's just, I guess, out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, yeah. All right, so finally, let's talk about some nerd facts. And we've kind of already given you a lot, but let's give you a few more little little doozies. Tidbits. Little tidbits. Um, as we kind of mentioned before, but in case you forgot the number, the first NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament was in 1939. And it's the first year it's not been held. Yeah, that's crazy. And the first team who won were the Oregon Ducks, who beat Ohio State to win the national title the first year. <laughs> Whatever. And a point-shaving scandal disgraced one NCAA champion. 1950, City College of New York became the only school ever to win the NIT and the NCAA tournament in the same year. The following season, however, several of its players were arrested for taking bribes from gamblers to shave points. The scandal eventually spread to more than 30 players at seven colleges, four of them in New York City. Yep, yep. So, as I'm sure you can imagine, African Americans have played a prominent role on some early NCAA championship teams, including future Hall of Famer Bill Russell, who led San Francisco to back-to-back titles in 1955 and 1956. I, have you ever heard of the school of San Francisco? I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't even know that. No, I think I've heard of it, but yeah, I, you never... Um, nonetheless, as we know from our, uh, our history classes, many schools refused to integrate until after Texas Western, who is now UTEP, became the first team with an all-black starting lineup to win the tournament in 1966. Yeah, and they made a movie about that. Yes, they, they did. did. It yeah. was called – what was it called? I'm Googling it right now. It was uh, Glory, Glory Road. Glory Road, uh, yeah. And so in that movie, yep. or in, in real life, Texas Western beat Kentucky – who was coached by Adolph Rupp. What a, what a re- terrible name. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, you know, that name was popular before the mid Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, once reportedly asked journalists if they could put an asterisk next to the game of white high school players so he would know who to recruit. But by 1970, in Rupp's next to last season, even Kentucky had a black player. Wow, crazy. And then, like we said, we, we mentioned that March Madness was used to refer to basketball in Illinois and Henry V. Porter, but the term didn't find its way until the NCAA tournament until, here's just a fun tidbit, some guy named Brett Musburger used it during coverage of the 1982 tournament, and it has been synonymous with the NCAA Division I men's basketball tourney ever since. Gotta love Musburger. Good old Brent. All I remember of Brent is him salivating over uh, the Alabama quarterback's girlfriend. And then, oh, yeah, that was <laughs> which who was what's what oh. AJ McCarron's girlfriend? Yes, yeah. and he AJ just McCarron's girlfriend. He just could not. That. He just could not help himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one shining moment is the anthem of March Madness. The song was written by David Barrett in 1986 and first used for the NCAA men's basketball tournament in 1987. After each tournament, the song accompanies a montage of the best moments of March Madness from every buzzer, buzzer beater and major upset to reactions of fans themselves. I did not know that theme song. Neither did I. Oh, you guys didn't really? Oh, I, love, I, no. I look forward to this, this song and this montage every year. It's Justin, just- do you sing along? with it one shining moment yeah it's amazing he wrote the song 
Barrett wrote the song as an ode to basketball, but it was first scheduled to run after Super Bowl 21. Um, after the coverage of the game ran long, the song, the song never aired for the Super Bowl, but CBS producer Doug Toey used it in the following March Madness, where it has lived ever since. Yeah, and then how about this? The biggest upset, and we all remember this, in March Madness mm-hmm. history is the number 16 seed, UMBC, University of Maryland, Baltimore Counties, 74-54 win over number one seed, Virginia, in the 2018 tournament. It was the first time in the history of the tournament that a 16 seed beat a one seed, and the one seeds were a perfect 135-0 to zero through college basketball history. Let me ask you guys, has a number two seed ever lost an NCAA tournament game? Yeah, fifteen seed. Yes, Mizzou did it. Actually, oh, Mizzou did? and Mizzou oh. and Mizzou and one other team. You had two number twos lose in the same tournament. Again, that was me being sorry. I did know that. That was me being sarcastic. It was. It's my just, my my two favorite teams, <laughs> Mizzou and Duke. <laughs> yeah, I remember that because I think I even i i was I was happy that Duke lost because it took some of the, like the it took some of the uh, the impetus off Mizzou losing because it's like oh now two number twos lost not just yeah. oh Mizzou stunk it up oh, yeah. D- oh Duke was the whole story they hardly even talked about Mizzou which was nice I know it was it was awesome yeah <laughs> and so to go back to the previous point Mar- Virginia wasn't just the number one seed they were the number one overall seed. Yeah, they were the best team in the country that year. So, well, and they lost by twenty points. But then, yeah, the fact that they got spanked. But they did get a little bit of redemption because they won the tournament the next year. So they did. That's kind of they cool. were they were upset. Yeah, uh, yes. rightfully so. Yeah. So the biggest March Madness comeback happened in 2000, 2001, where your Dukies. Trailed Maryland 39-17, and the Blue Devils would rally to win 94-84. And they also went on to win the championship that year. Yeah, I think that had Jay Williams on that team, I think. Duke is also on the other side of the runner-up as the Blue Devils blew an 18-point first lead, half lead against Seton Hall in 1989. Uh, and Seton Hall won 95-78. And then the player with the most points in NCAA history, with 407, averaging 17.7 points a game, was Christian Leitner. Have you guys seen the 30 for 30? I hate, I hate Christian Leitner. Yeah, you've seen I've, that? I've, I've not. No, I've heard of it, but I have not seen it. I have not seen it. I love it. It's so good. It's great. And I, 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 I like Christian Leitner. I don't think I would have liked playing against him. He seemed like a giant jerk to play against. But as a fan, big, I, I like, I like Leitner a lot. He was the only amateur player on the Dream Team in 96. Yep. And the high-scoring game in tournament history came on March 18, 1990, when Loyola Marymount beat that team up north by a final score of 149-115 for 264 total points in the game. That's a lot of points. Jeez. Um, That's a high-scoring College bad. That's an NBA score. That's an all-star game score. I was going to say that's an all-star game. That's crazy. <laughs> Notre Dame's Austin Carr. What, hold on. Let me go back to that real quick. That's not only crazy, but it's also crazy because the game's shorter. Like, yeah. They're 48 to, minutes instead of 60. Yeah. So that's a lot much shorter. Uh, anyway. A, not a lot of defense. No, not a lot of defense at all. Notre Dame's Austin Carr actually holds the record for most points in an NCAA tournament game with 61 against Ohio in 1970. 
And this dude owns three of the top five single game NCAA tournament scoring performances. So he's he's quite the baller. Can, yeah. There the have been 81 NCAA tournaments since 39, and there are five schools that have been more than half of them. Kentucky has the most with 58, and North Carolina is second with 50. And rightfully so, Kentucky has the most NCAA tournament wins with 129 for an average of 2.2 wins per appearance. North Carolina is right behind them with 126 or 2.5 per appearance. Uh, let's not forget about their old coach, Mike Krzyzewski, who has the most wins the tournament. He picked up his 97th last year. That's 18 ahead of second place coach, Roy Williams from North Carolina. Boo. And then (laughs) the most championships is John Wooden, as we talked about earlier, with 10 at UCLA. Mike K is second with five. Coach K. Coach K. I'm I'm just reading what's on the paper. So (laughs) I I don't know. The researcher had a problem, I guess. And then the third here is Justin's guy again, Adolph Rupp with four in Kentucky. Yeah. Is anybody going to catch Wooden? I don't uh, think it's possible. Not not in this decade. Krzyzewski's in his seventies, isn't he? I mean, he's got almost. He's yeah. He's not. uh, He's he'd have to win like five. He'd have to win six in a row probably to do it. Yeah. Uh, Since the NCAA, I was just going to say there's too much parity nowadays. Like there's too many good players that get spread out to schools. Um, that it's just it's really hard to repeat. And one and dones. Yeah. Since the NCAA began seeding in 1979, at least one number one seed has made it to the Final Four every year except for 1980, 2006, and 2011. But all four number one seeds have advanced only once when Kansas, Memphis, North Carolina, and UCLA did it in 2008. Four number 11 seeds have decimated brackets across the nation by advancing to the Final Four. We had LSU in 1986, George Mason in 2006, VCU, I was rooting for VCU big time this year in 2011, and we also had Loyola Chicago in 2018. However, none of them were able to reach the final. That was the year of what, Sister Jean, right? Uh, 2018, Loyola Loyola, Chicago. Chicago, yeah. Yep. And then so the lowest seed to ever win the whole thing was the number eight seed Villanova in 1985. And when Harvard won the Ivy League regular season title during the 2011-2012 season, the school earned an automatic bid to the NCAA tournament, ending their 66-year drought. They hadn't participated in March Madness since 1946. That's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. Let's not let's not uh, forget about Dartmouth, who's Given them a run for their money, and they have gone 58, 58 straight years without making the tournament. That's a long – that's like – yeah, that's a long time. Let's go, Dartmouth. You know, here in St. Louis, we don't know about droughts anymore because we finally won the cup last year. So, we're all good. Yeah. In the state of Missouri, we don't know about droughts. I know. Blues that's right. Won the Chiefs, cup, won. Chiefs won the Super Bowl. It's been a good year for, for Missouri sports. I think the the Cardinals have the longest drought in Missouri right now. Yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, the Royals, that's right, yeah. The Royals did it in 15. Cardinals haven't done it since 11. 
which Lose is not, that's that's weird. I don't think they're very <laughs> close to winning it soon either. So uh, I didn't think they day. were close this year. Yeah, no. Yeah. Well, hopefully you won't learned a lot about the old March Madness and the NCAA, or as we've been calling it, March Sadness. Yeah, March Sadness. Yeah. So let let's get to some nerd outreach. So we'll start with thank yous. Um, I'll start. I want to obviously, as usual, I hear them running around upstairs right now. Thank my wife and my daughter. But I also want to give a shout out to all the first responders and nurses and doctors who are working so hard during this time. That's who I was going to thank. So that's all. Those were the only people that I was going to thank for everybody keeping us safe and trying to do what they can to prevent this from getting any worse. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing, and I'll also tack on some more people to thank. I think it's important to thank like all of the people that are out there still working, uh, people working in grocery stores and restaurants and all the deliveries, delivery truck people and truck drivers and um, all the basically people that are making sure that our country is still running. Uh, all thanks. those essential people. Yeah, thanks to them as well. And thanks to DoorDash. It's been very helpful for me in the last couple of weeks. So, <laughs> you know, we've been cooking a lot at home. I got the grill fired up and we've been grilling a lot. So, yeah, I was going to do that tonight, but it, it might be cold. Yeah. <laughs> might be too cold for that. We'll be a little chilly. So for, uh, so if anybody has any suggestions for any future shows, you can send them to us via email at nerd is the new cool podcast at gmail.com. Or you can use the hashtag nerd is the new cool podcast on any of the socials. Yeah. And of course, if you want to like us or follow us on Facebook or Instagram at nerd is the new cool podcast or follow us on Twitter at nerd is the new CO2. And then where to hear us. You can look us up on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Just search nerd is a new cool podcast and you'll find us. And stay tuned for the next episode. We continue our journey, TV through the decades, with the 80s. Josh, yeah. you, were, you were born during this. I was decade. finally born in the, in the late in 1980. Yeah. yeah. So, so listen, th- thanks to everyone who listened to us today. Yeah, these shows. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be a big, 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 big decade of television. I'm excited about the 80s. Uh, so real quick, uh, thanks for listening, but also thanks for dealing with our technical difficulties. And, and you know, obviously this is our first shot at being, uh, you know, recording a podcast remotely through Zoom. So we should thank Zoom too. We should thank for, Zoom. Yes. For existing. <laughs> so, all right. Well, all right. thanks guys. Thanks. Bye-bye. <laughs>